Hi, and welcome to the Christians in Sport podcast. It's great to have you with us. Uh, we've got a special episode today. Graham Daniels, our general director, sat down with Pete Nicholas, uh, Reverend Pete Nicholas of Inspire St. James Clerkenwell, who's also one of our trustees, and they had a fascinating interview all about uh, identity uh, in the world of elite and competitive sport, how it's formed, how it affects our mental health, uh, how the last few months have been in that regard as well. Uh, it's a great interview. Uh, we interviewed Dano for maybe 25, 30 minutes uh, and then a chance for questions and answers. So you'll hear Pete read the questions uh, and Dan have a chance to answer them well. It was a great time. Uh, really hope you enjoy this. Hope you're well. Bye-bye. You know me. I've always just been there. I've shaped people, communities and countries. I've been caught up in controversy and sometimes made no apology. Millions have relied on me, but I rely on you. Now, more than ever. You see, we're not bound by 90,000 stadiums or first place medals. We're united by a passion. I'm counting the days until I make a grand return. But until then, enjoy your Augusta, your new camp, your Lords, and make home advantage count. I am sport, but I am nothing without you. Well, welcome to an evening thinking about elite sport in lockdown and mental health. Great to have my guest for the evening, Graham Daniels, who I'll introduce in just a moment. The running order for the evening as you join us is we're going to be interviewing Graham from 8 till 8.30, and then we'll have a five-minute break, an opportunity for you to get a refreshment and think also of questions, because in the second half of the evening, running up until 9 o'clock when we finish, we'll be doing a live Q&A with Graham about the themes that we'll be unpacking this evening. And you'll see on the screen that you can use Slido, the app, or go to slido.do and use hashtag sport mental health for those questions. My name is Pete Nicholas, and it's a great pleasure to be your host for the evening. Well, Graham, it's great to welcome you to be here with us. Let me give you the formal introduction, though we know each other well as friends. Graham is director of football League Two Club Cambridge United and a former professional footballer himself at Cambridge United and also Cardiff City and now General Director of Christians in Sports. And I suppose also relevant for this evening, something we're going to be thinking about, is you're currently completing a PhD looking into professional sports and identity formation. Thanks, Graham, for being with us. You're welcome. <laughs> it's quite a nice that. There you go. Well, I've got it out. It's good to give you the formal welcome. Um, look, we've been through a really unusual time. And, you know, in some said last week on Wednesday, when sports started up again, or at least professional football, started up again, it, it felt like an, an end of an era because we've had 15 weeks since, well, the last event of the Premier League was when Leicester City beat Aston Villa 4-0. Uh -huh. somebody born in Leicester, I just had to raise that. Um, so we're going to be exploring this actually from a player's perspective, what it's like, not so much as us viewing it, but as players who've been living through that. And we're going to be thinking about what that throws up for us and identity formation. But since identity is a theme we're thinking about this evening, we better start by getting to know you a little bit and your identity. So uh, the discerning sociologist might pick up your Welsh accent. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about your, um, your childhood and, uh, you know, how you got into professional football, I suppose. Uh, well, I grew up in uh, South West Wales, uh, a great town called Llanelli, 
uh, which is very famous for its rugby, for anyone who's remotely knowledgeable about rugby. So, of course, as a child, there was no football. It just didn't exist. It was not for our school. Uh, but I twisted a few arms, and when you went into what's now year 11, you were allowed to play football. Uh, there's six formers at a team. Anyway, uh, I was allowed to play, and I was better at football than rugby. So I ended up in a Welsh schools trial, uh, was spotted by Cardiff City, uh, signed for Cardiff City, did my sixth form uh, at school, travelled to Cardiff every weekend, weekday, um, holidays and so on. And then <laughs> went to university in Cardiff, uh, did a degree in philosophy because it meant I could uh, go to four lectures a week, which is all there were, and two tutorials. I'd train every day at uh, Ninian Park. So that's how it all got started, really. Now that's, I mean, look, without buying into caricatures, that is slightly unusual that you would be a professional footballer at the same time as studying, and actually you ended up with a second degree as well. So look, how did you juggle study and football and that? I mean, notwithstanding only four lectures a week. Well, <laughs> that's how I juggled it. When I chose a subject where uh, it was unemployable at the end and there were hardly any lectures, but it was good fun. I loved philosophy. Um, uh, I, funnily enough, it was the what what hardly remains now the grammar school system. Uh, a selection at eleven is obviously controversial, but what it did mean back in the day for me was that I had a, an unbelievable head teacher at a boys' school of five or six hundred boys, who actually almost took parental response. He was local parentis because my parents you know, worked in a factory in a canteen, and he really took control of my life in an academic sense. He insisted I stayed in sixth form and he worked with the University of Cardiff to do the deal. I mean, incredible. You know, 500 boys to work with. So actually that's how it happened. And he was the one who advised me what to do. <laughs> Amazing. And then you moved to Cambridge and Cambridge United. How did that come about? Uh, um, well, at the end of my uh, my degree at Cardiff. I'd, so I've been in the football club for about five years and they called me and I thought, oh good, they'll want me to play full time now because I won't be bothered with a degree for a while. And they said, thanks very much. It's been excellent. See you. Uh, they said, oh, there is somebody who's willing to sign you. But I didn't, well, I didn't, they said Cambridge United. I don't think I'd ever crossed the same bridge apart from football games. I didn't know where Cambridge was. Uh, so I assumed they must be offering good money for me, you know, because Cardiff were letting me go, which of course they weren't offering anything for me. Uh, and so off I went to Cambridge for a trial uh, because I didn't have a club and I just finished my degree. So I was going to do some postgrad work and Cambridge offered me a, a deal. So I shifted everything 300 miles east uh, and I'm here. That was 1983. Uh, so I've been here ever since. Very good. Now, one thing that's relevant for that whole evening, but also hugely relevant, obviously, for your life is you're a Christian. Was that part of your upbringing? Was it a, a kind of typical Welsh Valley's upbringing going to chapel, or how did that become a part of your life? Uh, well, the, the answer is yes, it was part of my upbringing because I grew up in the 60s and 70s, so pretty much everybody, certainly up to the mid-70s, went to chapel, as it were. So that was a normal cultural uh, event. Uh, um, to some extent, obviously, what you go through colours the rest of your life and some of the choices you make. And for me, um, obviously, as a little boy, like so many people will be watching us tonight, a uh, little boy, little girl, you know, it, does, it sounds grand, but of course, it's not at all. 
you know, I was the best in my street and then in my class and then in my little town. And, and then, you know, by the time you're a teenager, you define yourself by the fact that you are good at sport uh, and that's who you are at school. So actually there were, there were a few boys I looked up to at school who were very, very good players at rugby, cricket, soccer, whatever they played. And one was the boy who was captain of cricket. And I was chosen for the school team because they were a man short with five minutes to go before they left for a game in Cardiff when I was in uh, year 10. And very kindly sat by me on the bus to Cardiff and back. I, I was third man. I didn't bat. I was just there to make up the numbers. I, I thought I was there because I was good, but it soon turned out not to be so. And uh, very kindly on the way back, he'd scored loads of runs, taken a lot of wickets and a uh, 50-mile journey. And he... Uh, five miles out of Cardiff, he said, what did I do at the weekend? It was a Monday. I said, oh, I played cricket Saturday. I did nothing Sunday because I'd stopped going to church at about 12. I said, really boring. Just did nothing. I said, what did you do at the weekend? Uh, he said, I played cricket Saturday. I went to church Sunday. Now, I, I didn't know anyone cool. My mum used to go to church, but she was 40-odd, which was ancient. So I didn't know anyone young and cool and sporty who ever went near such a thing. And I said, why do you go to church? Does your mother make you go to church? You know, king of school, what? And he said, no, I go to church because I follow Jesus. And he colored a bit, you know, he, he blushed up a bit. Um, and it was the first time in my whole life at 15 that I ever made the equation that somebody could relatively unashamedly say they were a Christian with conviction uh, to me. And that said in train, really, a bunch of things. Why would the best sportsman in school bother to tell me about anything other than sport, especially something as silly as Christianity? So that's how it kicked off an alternative Graham Daniels, I suppose, Pete, an yeah, alternative great. vision for me, yeah. uh, I think. Mm. At that stage, yeah, very helpful. And then uh, fast forward, but I know we're dotting around a little bit, but it's just helping yeah. me to get with you. Yeah. How did you then start, I mean, much later on, of course, you know, post-Cambridge United, how did you come to work for Christians in Sport and the involvement with um, the organisation? Uh, yeah, well, it, it was pretty thrilling, really. Um, I, I became a follower of Christ when I was about 22, so about a year after moving to Cambridge, um, reading, buying books, thinking, away from home for the first time at a distance from everyone. And uh, I, I knew I needed to be a Christian, so I... I, I Said I was a Christian, started going to church, met a boy from school who was doing a PhD here at Cambridge, bumped into him in the street, went to his church. Somebody read the Bible with me every week from the church and so on. So I got going on being a Christian. Um, and then a man came from Oxford who ran Christians in sport uh, called Andrew Wingfield Digby. And, and somebody said that, uh, after training one day, at work, there's a really posh guy in reception for you. Reception was a porter cabin, by the way. So posh people didn't come there. And it was the wrong end of Cambridge. Sure enough, there was a posh guy about six foot three. And I'd been baptized and there'd been something in the local paper about it. Somebody obviously had told him. He came to me and said, did I know there were other professional players who were Christians, footballers? Now, I'd spent the last six months asking friends, old colleagues and people I knew when I played against people, anybody a Christian? Nobody identified anybody. So I said, I don't think so. He said, oh, they're on. But of course, he was seemed very authoritative and he ran this little organization. And he said, um, I said, how many then? 90 clubs. And he said, four. I said, oh, four. 
I thought he was going to say 40 because he was so knowledgeable. And I said, four, who are the four? And he named three. I said, well, who's the fourth? He said, you. Uh, so I was probably 22, maybe 23. And I just kept in touch with him, Pete, uh, yeah. over the years. He's very good to me, very kind. Um, as you say, I, I, at 25-ish, I left full-time football. I felt I, I needed to study. I had no knowledge. Mm. I did the theology degree. And Wingfield Digby Wingers uh, said to me two years into it, well, I was making money from football and study again. Uh, he said, listen, in a couple of years, if you get your degree finished, do you want to come and work with me? So I was 29 when I started working with Christians. 29, yeah. yeah uh, I'm 58. It's a long time ago. <laughs> And look, over the last 30 years or so, not to date you, um, but obviously a lot has changed. There's far more players now who would identify themselves as being Christians and you know who play professional sport or play elite sport. That's one of the facets of your work. And that's one of the things we're wanting to explore this evening. So look, give us a bit of an idea. What has it been like over the last you know, nearly four months, really, for the players for the coaches. It's an unusual period for all of us, COVID. Mm-hmm. But what has it been like, I suppose, give us a window into that for players when you've just stopped playing midway through a season? Well, of course, strange, as it has been for everybody. But I think two things fundamentally are, are unique to them, perhaps. Number one, um, of all the players, let's do football for a minute because we could do other sports and we could diversify if you need to, if you want to. But let's stick with one sport. With football, we've had 60, 60 to 70 all in probably players and coaches, two separate groups, meeting once a week. And uh, Zoom opens half an hour before the meeting. People show up to have a bit of banter. The meeting goes for an hour, 15 minutes Bible passage, 40 minutes discussion groups back in, goodbye. Room stays open for as long as you want to go into a side room to catch up with people. Well, I mean, we've never had this many people coming every week to a, a get together because, of course, everyone's working. They're working all all the time. So, I mean, it's unprecedented. I mean, it's been intense. It's been wonderful. It's people who didn't even know somebody else was a Christian in another part of the country. Uh, loads of peer mentoring, effectively. So that's been exhilarating, really. Yeah. And secondly, and I'll put this more briefly, it's been striking, striking after the first two weeks when you stick your head into a breakout room on Zoom to hear what they're chatting about when they're applying a Bible passage. You have people talking about, oh, it's been great. I've been weeding the garden. I've been planting some flowers. Oh, it's been great. I've been playing cards with the kids, not for money, uh, playing games <laughs> with the kids. Uh, and you think, what? They do- why are they talking about that? And the overwhelming thing I've noted is that life to them has never been this normal that they can breathe and not have to prove anything to anybody at all. And so many of them say, I never want to go back. <laughs> I never want to go back to the old way. Wow. Strange. Because, so, like for us, it's been a time of abnormality for the yeah. majority. For them, there's been lots of abnormal, but that's given them a taste of normality, is what you're saying. So, unpack Yeah. Uh, no, Peter, I was going to say uh, today, um, I just saw before we got together here, um, Neil Warnock's got the job at Middlesbrough. And uh, 
somebody's quoted him, I think, on Twitter as saying, oh, my word, fantastic. I'm 70-odd years of age. For the first time in my life, I'm guaranteed to go six games without the crowd booing me. <laughs> Which is brilliant, Warnock, isn't it? But that's what, that summarises it. Right. These people don't know anything different, especially if they're coaches and they've played a whole career. They simply know nothing other than you're as good as last Saturday, and if you fail last Saturday, you're nobody until you win next Saturday, mm. period. So we all know what happens. You win Saturday, you're exhilarating. It's exhilarating until Tuesday morning, and then Tuesday morning you think, right, right, next Saturday we're playing Spurs. <sighs> Blimey. Right, how are we going to do that one? You're never, ever free from the burden of performance, ever. And they've, some of those people have been in it 40 years and they've never been away from that. Never. It's incredible to see. So it, it, it kind of looks glamorous, but actually the, the lived experience you're saying is, you know, is this, is this drivenness of the, the crowd cheering you, but then immediately reevaluate what, you know, and he's going to do last game, right? So what about next week? Oh, Pete, hang on. I've got Sam Warburton here. Where's he gone? <laughs> oh, I've lost him. I've Sam Warburton. Here he is. Here he is. Sam Warburton. I'm just reading this now, right? There's passages in here where he says they've got an international match. He's on the bus. They're going to the Millennium Stadium, and he's saying to himself, maybe, maybe, and I, I won't do it on purpose, but if I turn my knee a little bit getting off the bus, or, or maybe if I just got sick now, maybe I wouldn't have to start the game. Sam Warburton. And he says, you know, they're coming to the Millennium Stage and the crowd is cheering and he's like, oh, play in England. Inside, he's thinking, perhaps something will happen that I don't have to go on the pitch. Amazing. That's the real world of the anxiety that if you're a war button, since you're a tiny tot, you have been defined as a rugby player. That's all you are. So if you fail that day, you're a failure. Peter... I don't know how people live with it. Not at the top level, not at the highest profile level. I don't know how they don't fall apart. So I well, really don't. Unpack that a little bit then. In your, in your PhD, you call that a driven identity. And that's a, yeah. a helpful phrase. There's the sense of always driving you. What's, what's yeah. problematic about that from an identity formation perspective? <sighs> I, I think I've gone round, round the circle of it a couple of times. L let me try and pin it down. In, in three principles. Number one, or, number one, descriptive. You are the best kid at seven. And at 12, you're the best kid in the region. And at 15, you're the best kid in the country in the position you play. And then you join a professional club. And then everybody knows who you are. And then you make the first team. We can look from the outside and say, yeah, that's a great lifestyle. He's earning good money and he's well known by everybody. He, in this instance, can only see himself as being as good as people think he is, and he's consumed by it. So, therefore, you can call it a performance identity. Sometimes people say an athletic identity or a driven identity because the only way, theoretically, you could say, don't be ridiculous, man, if your parents love you or if, you, if you've got good friends, surely you're more than a footballer at 17 or 20. They're not. Because they're terrified of failure because everyone's after their job. And if they go two weeks without scoring as a centre forward, the drivenness, the performance identity becomes so dominant 
that they are terrified of life, terrified of it. So mm. the truthness, of course, psychologically, I mean, I'm a sociologist or a theologian. I, I, I don't do the other disciplines. But, you, you know, pop psychology says it drives you crazy. Yeah. Crazy. So that's drivenness, totally consumed with proving yourself of any value by how well you perform as soon as you're on the field next. That's yeah. your life. Thank you. And look, I, I suppose it's particularly acute in professional sport. It's like focused and, you know, honed in that arena of elite sport, mm -hmm. but it's not unique to professional sport. How do you see this in other walks of life as well? Yeah. Um, obviously, I've no real expertise, but any expertise I've gleaned has been trying to research elite sports people off the pillars in my case. Um, clearly, on a more superficial analysis, I live in Cambridge. I'm on the staff of uh, associate staff of St. Andrew the Great. It's a university church. The cleverest young men and women in the country generally uh, are Oxbridge students, not always, but uh, they are. And uh, no doubt they are deeply defined by their ability. And this is where I see the similarities. Let me just pick that one. Mm. With a young footballer, they're the best of the best of the best of the best. They get a professional contract. Then they're in with everybody who's as good as them. I mean, mm. you get the exceptions, but they are the exceptions. Everybody's as good as them. And all of a sudden, they have no confidence whatsoever. And they lose a couple of games or don't get picked. And everything in them falls away. And people say the same at Cambridge, which happens to be my home. You get here, you're cleverer than everyone. You cream it all the time at school. Then you're here. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm no good. What do I do here? That's the kind of crisis I suspect that happens in all walks of life. Sport just puts you in the public arena, doesn't it? And, and yeah. the whole world is watching you. Yeah, same the shines brighter, but it's, yeah, it's there in other walks of life as well. Same phenomenon, yes. So then bring it full circle. Um, under lockdown then, this not, why was normal life such a revelation or has been such a revelation for those who've got this driven identity or performance identity? It, uh, because they have to make such a massive gap between their – all the world's a stage. They spend their lives stepping on the public platform looking like acting the role of a football manager or a player, putting their shoulders back, chin out, facing the Twitter world. Here we go. The gulf between their front stage and their backstage, the real them, the war button, who brilliantly says in his autobiography, he just wished he could get injured. The gap between who they are and the tears and the pain and the agony and the fear and the terror is so vast between their public life and their backstage life that when people have been in lockdown, there's been no need to have a public life, a front stage life. You're not going to be judged. I know players who have said, I'm absolutely gutted we're going back. I wish we could have another couple of months. And of course, the fans are going, get the football back, get the football back, get the football back. They're going, oh, let's leave it a bit longer. And I think... I think so many of us get this if we play sport. Don't worry too much now about being the elite. When you're playing badly and you're a competitive sports person, when you're flying along and a game's called off because it's too wet, you're sick. Oh, God, did. <laughs> when you're in terrible form and a game's called off, 
you wake up Saturday morning going, oh, it's bound to be off. It's bound to be off. <laughs> Liberation. I've got another week without being identified as an athlete. So I think lockdown has given people, as I say, sometimes coaches and managers in 30 years, players, managers, just the liberation to say, I could be more. In fact, I am more. I'm a human being more than I am a football coach. I think it's really as simple as that and yet very profound, actually. Really? So if that's given them a taste, then, in your research and as you've looked at it, what does it look like? It's got to be the question, really, to have a, an identity that leads to flourishing rather than something that crushes you or drives you all the time. So let's pick some stories, because if we do a Q&A, stories are, are always going to be helpful, aren't they? Let, let me tell you about um, Will Andrews, which is, of course, the pseudonym. Will Andrews uh, was playing for a Premier League club. Uh, he ended up playing about 700 games, captain his team for four seasons, five seasons. Um, Will wasn't a Christian. Now, I know I'm making a segue here, but he says that until he got to about 25 years of age, when he was playing a home game, Friday night was his. His wife, she just had to work completely around him. Kids, totally work around me. Saturday morning, ignored everybody. If he won Saturday night, Saturday night, if they won, brilliant. Night out with all the friends, all the lads, wife might come. Sunday, papers, get the newspapers. How many points out of 10 did the newspapers give me all day? If he lost, never spoke to anybody till Monday. Totally, totally neglected his family. He said when he became a Christian, it dawned on him within about four weeks. He met some people and they started going to church. And it dawned on him about four weeks after he had become a Christian, he and his wife. It dawned on him that he hadn't been bothered to look at the Sunday papers, though he had bought them. He hadn't looked at the scores until Monday or Tuesday for the last two weeks. He bought them all because they were all delivered. Two, he'd stopped worrying about his performance quite as much. Two, he found himself instinctively less concerned about himself, therefore, and more invested in his wife. And three, he went to church and he started meeting people on a Sunday morning, old and young, rich and poor, who didn't even know he was a footballer. And he said it was liberating. I'd planned to read the scores when I got home from church, but by the time we'd had lunch with people, I got home at three in the afternoon. And he did a snooze because I was naked from Saturday. Multiple stories like that, Pete. Not binary, you know, not completely free from it or no fear or no selfishness, clearly. But the, the impact of the liberation from being driven or performance orientated when you see a bigger possibility for yourself in life is, is very striking when you interview people and you see many people have a version of that story. Very good. Now, can I push you a little bit? Because, you know, you, you talk about liberation, you talk about, you know, Will's case, pseudonym, um, is the fact that he's no longer as concerned with his performance. Why yeah. is what, what's happening at a deeper level that's, that's causing that liberation? That, and what does it have to do with Christianity? Oh, boy. Good. We're right in it, aren't we? We're in the weeds now. Um, I think two things happen. 
Number one, an individual, when they interact with any institution, which is powerful and more powerful than them, the football club is more powerful than Will Andrews. doesn't matter how good he is. If he has a bad game, two games, he's at the team. Three games tops. The way you stay close to the institution, one is to play well. Two is to play the game, to have a good professional attitude. One of the boys, one of the lads. We're out tonight in the old days. That's how it worked. When you meet Christ, something in you, because it's a person, disrupts your fear of the institution. Something disrupts the fear. It's Christ, obviously, the Christian would say. It's the presence of Christ's spirit in you. He's in your life, and the institution is no longer the ultimate authority in your life. You can see beyond as an individual who interacts with football, the institution, you have a glimpse of something greater than football. And therefore, second of two, intuitively, uh, interview after interview, um, Pete Green, two big Premier League clubs in his career. When he became a Christian, he said, it was amazing. There was a part of me that was less worried about my performance. And yet there was a part of me that wanted to try harder than I'd ever tried. Because it dawned on me that the one who was bigger than football was the one who made me good. And I found, now remember this is in hindsight, as he speaks, Pete Green, but he's to a big London club and a big Northeast club. And he said, I found in hindsight that I actually started to love the game more because the one who made me good enough to play wasn't judging me on my last performance because he loved me and died for me and he would never judge me on a football performance. And he was the giver of my gifts. So here's the weird thing, Pete. So many people say I was less frightened of failure. Football was less important. And yet I loved it more and sort of gave more to it. Very, very weird if you got it from one person. But I got it from 12, 15 people. Same phenomenon. So, ergo then, part of maybe the assumption here to dig out is they're all saying then that God, Christ, in their life, from an identity perspective, is not driving their performance. Is that fair? It's exactly fair. And the antithesis for driven is called... I mean, their words coined by Ashley Null, who's a Cranmer scholar, but writes into sport uh, along these lines. Um, and so he uses the differential like that. To be driven is to have a performance identity, an athletic identity, a one-dimensional identity. To be called is to realize that actually your identity, not only are you not one-dimensional, to be loved doesn't hinge whatsoever on anything to do with your performance. It's entirely free. The God who made you fast, quick, tricky, skillful, the God who made you that loves you independently of any secondary things that he made you capable of doing. That's why he died for you. That's a called identity. And therefore, of course, it becomes a richer identity and a liberating one. Graham, thank you. 
that's like for me that's throwing up questions i'm sure for other people will as well so what we're going to do now is we're going to pause and we'll take um a break uh graham thanks very much and we'll take a break now well welcome back hope you had a opportunity to either cool off in this sparkling weather or get a drink and um we've now got 25 minutes or so for your questions and i've got the slido app up but we'll also pull them up onto the screen you can see the first one there so graham hope you're ready uh, I think this is a good question that maybe we didn't quite get into, actually, in the interview. So thanks for whoever sent this through. You've talked a lot about sports people's identity being based on performance and liberation from that. How do you think that links in with mental health? So it's more implicit, but let's draw it out a bit more. Yeah, sure. Okay, Pete. Well, I, I think probably, first of all, it's very important, isn't it, to define such an eclectic term, a broad term as mental health. Yeah. So let's start by saying, in the same way that physical health is a broad concept, which can include going for a walk, as I've done today as an old boy, uh, tried to walk 5K before this, uh, there's general physical health, and, of course, there's specific or clinical requirements for, for physical health, uh, which aren't generic ideas about broadly keeping fit. And I think sometimes we forget with mental health issues that there is a very broad brushstroke of staying mentally fit, mentally well, which must not be confused with clinical health, mental health issues, which I can't go near because I'm a generalist and a sociologist here, a theologian. Now, so it's important to contextualize the meaning of mental health. This is a general statement. Now, let me be specific. It's well known that when somebody wins the FA Cup and they're at Wembley, when the final whistle blows, the first place they're looking, they know exactly where their families sit. At all the big international matches, rugby, football, tennis, cricket, they, they all know where their families sit. Win or lose, the first place your eye goes at the end of a game is to your family. Why does it go there? Because that's the one place when there's 100,000 people in the ground where you are most likely to get unconditional love. Especially if you lost... They're for you. They're imploring you if you've won. They're the ones you want to cheer you. I think it's as straightforward as this, that the Christian faith offers a God who loves you so much that he will die for you to give you eternal life beyond the grave, and he will come and live in you. There is no greater love than this, that God would do this for us. So in conclusion, Pete, and I'm happy to go on from here with it, of course, I think I'm saying this is how the Christian faith operates. You don't have to be a Christian to taste the unconditional love of parents, partners, friends, neighbors. But the source of love in the universe, the Christian understanding says, is God. And he's the one who we ought to turn to for the best opportunity for generic mental health as athletes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm looking at the app, and um, one of the things it does, of course, ranks the questions based on uh, likes. So this one's a great question. How do athletes find identities through injuries? This is maybe the other side of the coin when things you know, don't go well for you. How do they find identities through injury? Well, what we do know, uh, and the literature, uh, again, forgive me if I'm being narrow, we have to extrapolate beyond the, the empirical stuff one considers. But I can certainly tell you that in, in football, uh, traditionally and typically, when you're injured, 
you have to act. You do have to act. For example, if you have a soft tissue injury, there are limitations to which the institutional culture will accept that you can't play because that's a bit soft. You don't have a good professional attitude. Listen, listen, it's a bit of a knock. I need you Saturday. Now, listen, Gaffer, I'm, I don't want to take a risk on this because there's 15 games to go and I just think one more game. It's for the team, son. It's for the team. And actually, you have to act. You literally, not always, of course, but there's loads of data on this. You actually have to find ways to go to work to do one of two things. You have to find a way to convince everybody that really is an injury and it really is a problem and you really can't play unless it's a broken leg or smashed cruciate. <laughs> or you're so desperate to fit in with the institutional culture, you need to be in the team. You can't be left out of the team that you'll do anything to play. You'll strap yourself up on the slide in the toilet before a game instead of letting the physio here. So injury exacerbates, exacerbates the institutional demands to fit in so often. You're ostracized when you can't play. Manager doesn't talk to you. So actually, the act of the injured player is extreme lots of the time. But if you have the guts to disrupt the culture and say, I'm not as frightened of the manager as I am of God, you can be a disruptor and you can go first and other people can follow you because you're under new management. So you're not as scared anymore. And there's a liberty. That's a kind of snapshot of some of the data on this. Thank you. So I guess, I mean, we'll go to the next question, which links really well with that, which is, is the question, is, do you think people turn to religion because they're looking for an identity? Is it just something to fill a gap? So if we're exploring identity and this is the most viable or best identity out there, is it just a kind of an identity swap? Is that what's behind this? Yeah. Um, I don't think the two, as it's captured there, uh, I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. Um, of course, because this hinges on on a truth claim. Uh, if there really is a God, not do I choose to believe in God because I want to have something to cling on to, to give me an unconditional acceptance beyond my thought. The Christian faith, so I'm speaking as a Christian who's researching performance identity sociologically, uh, uh, the Christian faith says there actually is somebody who created the whole universe and who knows you personally and who made you a footballer, in my case. He gave you those gifts and he has proved that he loves you regardless of what you do with those gifts by dying for you. Now be liberated not to fear human beings, but to rejoice in the one who is with you always and made you able to play. So it would be something surprising if that was true and human hearts and minds didn't think, how do I fill the gap when he's not there? <laughs> if he is there and you don't turn to him, there will be a gap. Yeah. There just will be a gap. So that's the Christian claim, that the God-shaped gap, as it's called by uh, Pascal and, and later by C.S. Lewis, uh, a philosopher and a, and a writer, they build on the God-shaped gap. That gap is a real one, and it can be filled by a real saviour 
which is Christ, the Son of God. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to a question in a moment, but just because this one links nicely to it. Does the driven identity then maximize performance, even if it has other costs? Because one of the things you mentioned earlier was you know, the liberation can actually lead to you, you know, playing better. So does it yes. maximize performance? Is that you know, something you've observed? I don't think there's any question that people fear, initially fear, not anymore, actually, because there are so many Christians in professional football now. But I can certainly take you back and answer to that question to an era. Let me give you an anecdote to give us some oxygen. I got a call, or oh, maybe 20 years ago, from a championship club. No, no, they were in the Premier League. And uh, one of their backroom staff, who was the life and soul of the party, uh, called me up and said, listen, we've got a problem. Our best ball winner, holding midfielder, uh, he runs the show here. Everyone's terrified of him when we play against people. He's, he's become one of your lot, which means he's become a Christian. He says the, the manager's terrified that he's going to lose his edge and turn into a, a bit of a wuss. Uh, I've told him I, I know somebody who can tell him what really happened. So I went to visit the club and the manager says, right, listen, we're playing so-and-so on Saturday. I won't name the names. Such a player is playing in the middle of the field. He needs to deck him early on. He needs to put him to bed early on. He said if he's, and I'm told if he's a Christian, he's going to be dead soft. <laughs> so I won't, I won't go on with the story too far, but I, I was able to say to him, well, look, I can assure you of two things. If he has become a Christian, there may be a transition period while he, his, his whole mindset adapts to this, but I can guarantee you one thing. There is no contradiction whatsoever between being a Christian and using the gifts that you've been given to the absolute optimum. In fact, you feel freer to do that because you believe that God gave you them. So there may be a transition period. He may not cheat for you. He may instinctively say, I'm not going over the top because it was the old days. So you may have some struggles at the beginning because his conscience will be sharper. But I can guarantee you this. If we get somebody to look at the Bible with him for a year and look at the performance identity and the security that God brings and the gifts that he's been given and the relationships he has to serve in the dressing room, he'll be a stronger player for it. But, and come back to me on this one, Pete, of course it's true that most people make it in elite sport because they are massively driven. And they would kill their grandma to get in the team. And there is no question that there is a big chunk of you that to make it as a, as a pro has to be incredibly driven to perform. And I'll stop with that and let you come back on me. So there are challenges uh, and tensions in the way that we have to deal with this. Yeah, well, thanks for giving me the latitude because I think it gets right to another bit. I think one mm. of the questions, might be is how how binary is it how discreet is it because of course we're talking about um driven and called talking about mm. liberation but i, I guess yeah. one of the things you and i will both know i mean the, the story i tell forgive me i know the questioner is that before when i used to play semi-pro rugby it was always um train 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 during the week perform on the weekend receive adulation or not as the case may be and then go and reset and do it all again then I got into pastoral ministry, started working in a church, and it, it nearly terrified me. And after a few years, I realized, what do I do? 
I train, train, train during the week. I stand up on Sunday, preach a sermon, they perform a sermon, perform, hope for some adulation or not. Yeah. And, and the performer's identity is stubborn, right? So how yeah. do you navigate, I guess, because it's not as like one stops and the other one just begins. How do you navigate kind of the overlap of those two identities, the drivenness and the callingness intermingled, I suppose? Yes, it's right. And, and we are, again, in, in the details of it, but they're really, really important details. So I, I think let's let's draw it in our minds like a, a triangle and at the very top of the triangle there's something here about your identity who am i who am i am i secure because i think the first thing that happens no matter how driven you are it really doesn't matter in one sense i think there's always two options when you're on the field you either feel safe or scared who am i now that's an identity question so it's 10 minutes to go in soccer, you're 1-0 down or you're holding on to a lead. You're playing. You're a critical part of the team. All, all the sports psychs I've ever worked with, they're trying to get you to make critical choices that you're safe, not scared. Once you're scared, here's what happens. Your talent, so let's take a look at the corner of the triangle. Your creativity, your talent, your ability gets shaky because you get nervous. So it really doesn't matter how driven you are. When the pressure really comes, you may have got onto the team, you may be on the pitch with 10 minutes to go, but at this point now, you need a trigger that says, I am safe whatever happens here in the next 10 minutes. It's at that point that that safety mechanism allows you to take your ability and release it and not freeze. You can serve the team. You do not freeze up. And then finally, the other corner, you've got your relationships, your teammates, your opponents. If your identity is safe, you can choose to serve, not swerve. So many players, I don't care how driven they are, they swerve it when they're frightened. They hide. Every player knows how to hide. In every sport, we know how to hide. You can serve the team or swerve the team. And finally, therefore, when the final whistle comes, I don't care how driven you are. If it goes wrong, you can choose two things. You can, you can slander the team and blame everybody else. Or, and this is a wonderful thing, isn't it? You can share your life with the team in victory or defeat. So I think being driven can get you so far. But what it can't do is build a stable career because you cannot sustain based on the adrenaline of being driven alone. You can't. And careers do not last. They fall apart. They fall apart too early if your identity is flawed and you play scared all the time. That's my understanding sociologically of what happens. Oh, that's really helpful. And I think that just adds a layer of complexity to it and shows that it's a journey rather than a point you arrive yeah. at, like magic. Yes. So thank you. Yeah, and let me, let me just come back quickly there, Pete, because then it's obvious. And obviously, psychologists will be miles better because I'm an amateur there. But, but th those three, th the identity part, the use of your talent, and your relationships, they're not even. The identity now becomes 80%. If you can play less scared, more safe under pressure, you're so much more likely, eight times out of ten, to perform to a level where you can serve your colleagues better. So really, the starting point of the game and your drivenness becomes entirely secondary, entirely. 
Very good. Thank you. Really helpful. Thanks for taking the time to unpack that. Look, I wonder if we've got time maybe for, for two more, so we'll see. Uh, one here, uh, Dana, why don't the professional sports players um, be more open about their faith? I think some of those people often think that. They don't hear about the players who are Christians. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't think you can generalize, Pete. Um, forgive me, forgive me, uh, AD. Uh, maybe we'd have to pick that up separately. Um, I'm going to give you a, one answer to it. Um, I, I, let me say two things. One, go back 30 years. Nobody dared say they were a Christian. <laughs> it's true. They were so few and it was so hard. And it was acceptable in culture. Here's a critical point. It was entirely acceptable in sport to slaughter somebody if they said they were a Christian. Literally bully them, mock them, make fun, undermine them, drop them, sack them. It was feasible. It could be done. It was done. One of the, one of the pluses of the current era one of the many pluses, and there are defects to this, is that nobody gets bullied for their faith anymore. Whatever faith you have or none, there is an acceptance that people have different perspectives on life, and it would not be acceptable to bully them. So, AD, I could tell you of probably 100 people, 60 to 100 people easily in professional sport who are unashamed to say they're Christians. The truth is, it's not as exciting anymore to name somebody as a Christian in the media in this country uh, because it's just not cool to do so, and you can't make fun of it. <laughs> so actually, I don't think people are shy about their faith. Uh, I think the media is less interested in Christianity than it ever has, and and people are unashamed to say they're a Christian in sport now. Thank I think you. the USA is just different. It, it's just yeah. But even in the USA, I do know the stats of people being interviewed in the public media about their faith is declining dramatically because people just actually don't want to know anymore because it's seen as biased to interview the Christian. Interesting. Mm. We'll end on this, this next one then, which I like because it talks about when lockdown is over. So mm. I'm going to generalize a little bit more. It says, when lockdown is over, how can elite sports people and elite business people who fear failure learn to be content? with their performance at work. But can I just, I'm going to be cheeky. Sorry, uh, Anonymous, to ask this question. Can I ask the question? I think we, we've all, to a degree, one of the things we're exploring is we've all got this performance identity. How can we, out of lockdown, any of us facing the fear of failure, learn to be content in the arenas of our performance? Because it could be a mum who feels the, yeah. the, the pressure to perform in being a good mum, for example. Yeah, without doubt, Pete. Well, let, let me try, even though we're going to have to imagine it. Let, let, let me try this to finish then. Let me make it, I'll do it as a personal picture. Here am I, the individual. I need to interact with the world around me, my office, my family, my children, my sport. I'm interacting all the time in life, different places, different ways, different institutions. So if my performance identity is dominated by my role at work, or how good a dad I am. Here's the first thing the Christian would say, I think. I think, could you just look up beyond the institution, beyond being a great mum or a good-looking guy or brilliant at your job or a professional sportswoman? Could we just step back and look up? You know what I'd say, Pete? Go to church. Go to church after lockdown. Once the churches are open, go to church. Go online for now and then go. Because when you get there, 
this is the place, whether you have a faith or not, this is the place to learn that above the institution is the incarnational God, is God who became a human being. And then secondly, this is what can happen in life as a matter of practicing faith. We push out our interactions with institutions. So let me go to sport. We push out that I, Graham Daniels, interact at Cambridge United with the institution called professional football every week. And I'm frightened of losing, so I judge myself by it. Push those two out and leave two things, the incarnate God and me. Push the other two eyes out. There we go. This is faith. Look at Christ. Christ is in me. Am I a great mum? Am I great at my job? Forget that for a minute. He loves me unconditionally. Now, I've put those other two things to the side. And now I can say, you love me, don't you? But I've screwed it up again. I'm a rubbish dad. Oh, what a shock I had on Saturday. Oh, I was useless in the office. My figures are terrible this month. But you haven't changed. You haven't changed. You love me. And it's at that point that I can look horizontally at the world around me and say, okay, individual interacts as an institutions. How will I love my colleagues at work? How will I do my best for my colleagues at work? How will I serve my children? How will I interact with my partner? The liberation to serve there, the capacity to give to other people is exponentially developed when we have a right relationship, an unconditional relationship with a God who died for us and gives us new life. We have to move things out of the way to see him. So I would say, get stuck into God's word with God's people. And as you said earlier, Pete, this becomes a process, a lifelong process of knowing unconditional acceptance and a way of working out love with other people, contingent on growing in grace of the love of God so that you can give more away. You become a better teammate. Let me finish with this, Pete. In all the research, in all the research, when a player becomes a Christian, there's always an initial conflict in the dressing room because people don't know what to do with him. But without fail, in the end, he starts to become a pastoral carer for players. The manager is scared what's going to happen to him. In every case, within three seasons, the manager wants him to be the key guy looking after people in the dressing room. Why? Because he's learned security from the incarnate Christ, and he's great uh, in interacting with the football institution and giving to people and giving his talent and his ability and his love and his concern. It's slow, it's secure, but it's magnificent. And I think this applies to all performance identity, not just sport, clearly, clearly. It's, I, it thrills me. Really, Pete, I find it thrilling, and I think this is a life worth living. Life blooming tough. But to know Christ like this, and to be able to live in the light of that free gift. Oh, my gosh. Crack on, I say to myself. Crack <laughs> on for another day. Crack on for another day. Yeah. I believe it. Graham, thank you. Um, that kind of pretty much comes to, brings our, our, our time to a close. But thank you so much for giving up your evening. I'm aware you could have been sauntering along the River Cam and enjoying this beautiful balmy evening. So thank you for your time very much. And thank you to all you who've um, been tuning in and connecting with us. Let me give you a couple of uh, signposts for ways that you can take this forward. And we hope this has been an enjoyable evening. And more than that, I suppose, we hope it's piqued your interest and this is something you'd want to think about more. Um, first of all, please visit christiansinsport.org.uk and go to particularly the resources um, section of the website. And there you'll find blogs and resources exploring issues like identity, 
podcasts, um, chatting to um, you know various different people from the world of sport about these type of issues. And that's a, a way you can kind of take this conversation forward. So visit christiansinsport.org.uk and pick up resources. And if you want to connect in, of course, as a sports player, then you'll find the ways to do that on that website. Secondly, if you'd like to connect with Inspire St. James Clarkwell, where I'm one of the ministers um, at the church and we've been hosting this evening with Christians in Sport, then please, again, visit our website, inspiresaintjames.org. And we're doing uh, online services on Sunday at 11 a.m. We always have a large number of people who are connected with us online who are guests, so we don't assume anything about your faith background. So why not have a look at that and get a sense of that perspective as you look up that hopefully liberates you to be able to look out towards other people. Other than that, I hope you enjoy the rest of the evening. There'll be a small video for you to watch as the evening closes. And thanks so much for connecting with us. But have a good rest of the evening. Good night.